0: We are going to study the book of Habakkuk tonight in our series on the Minor Prophets. And the Minor Prophets get you into stuff that you might not otherwise know was in the Bible. That's one of the reasons why in RUF we like to touch down in lots of different places in the scriptures so that if you're around RUF for three, four years, you will have had an opportunity to, to experience different parts of the Bible. Because really, it's this grand story. The Bible is this grand story made up of all kinds of diverse parts that contribute different aspects to the story. And the book of Habakkuk is actually a really good one, and I think it will it will be pretty easy for you to see the contemporary relevance of this book. I feel like more than, more than ever, people are aware of injustice, but also overwhelmed by it and don't know where to begin in dealing with it. And, um, you know, even... Just conversations I've had post-election with students um, who can't... It's not just that they're disappointed or upset about things in our country and whatnot, but there's like this generation gap between parents and kids. And like, can we even talk together? Like, where do you even begin? And Habakkuk is a great book because Habakkuk talks about how the struggle is real. And sometimes the struggle is made even more intense by God's mysterious ways, particularly the way he acts in history with regard to kind of the affairs of nations. And, um, and then we're going to talk about how do we learn to wait in the midst of that reality. I love that we sang that first song, or sorry, we sang that song, Sweet Comfort. We've sung that song a long time in RUF, There was another version of that same hymn text without the chorus, Sweet Comfort. Um, It's actually a a hymn text, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. And it was on our first in double Grace record, and we used to sing it. And the, the tune that we used to sing was more of a tune that was like kind of gutting it out. You know, boom, whatever my God. It was just like, you know, you're like kind of gutting it out, which at times, that's how you have to live the Christian life. And then, you know, Sandra McCracken, who's a Belmont REF alum and a dear friend, went through just horrific um, stuff in her life. And, um, you know, I, I was just really touched when I saw it. Like, she didn't have to add that chorus, Sweet Comfort, to this song about Whatever My God Does Is Right. And particularly in the midst of real sorrow and heartache and all the kinds of questions about why has happened what has happened, finding comfort, I I just love that hymn, because it comes from a real place. That the doctrine even of God's sovereignty, while at one level it seems to provoke some of the questions about evil and how do we make sense of it all, it actually, as you ponder more deeply, is the only hope. Of moving forward and getting some resolution, so that's, I think, um, a great way to begin thinking about this book. Let's read, if we will, chapter one. I'm going to read these um, first seven verses, and I'm going to skip down to verse 12. you'll follow. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw: O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law (coughs) is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And then the Lord answers, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. And the description goes on, but I think you get the point of what the Chaldeans are like. Jump down to verse 12. Habakkuk complains again. Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who, are, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. The Chaldeans he's talking about here. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? And Habakkuk goes on. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And let's talk about this a little bit before we get into the Lord's answer um, to the second complaint. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you see fit to include in your Holy Scripture a back-and-forth dialogue like this, where your prophet complains and you answer and interact. Help us to learn more about who you are, to trust even in the mystery and your mysterious ways, And help us to love you more, even through this portion of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I think you can identify with the beginning, right? The struggle prompted by God's silence in the face of evil. The struggle is provoked by the Lord's silence. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? or cry to you, violence, here's violence, look at it, and you will not save. The struggle is provoked by the Lord's silence. Why won't he answer me? But then, he does answer. And it doesn't make things better. Because the answer is an answer that no one wants to hear. And so you see, at first, the struggle is provoked by the Lord's silence Why won't you answer me? He answers, and then you see the struggle is provoked by his mysterious ways. I don't like his answer. Now, sometimes you don't get a clear answer, and you think the worst thing imaginable is that God doesn't answer. Well, Habakkuk got an answer, and it didn't make it better. Because what God answers is, I'm going to use the evil Chaldeans to do my will, and to chastise you, my people. I think we can relate to the struggle with the Lord's silence. I don't know if you've ever heard God say, I'm going to chastise you, my people, through an evil nation. But I do think you can relate to the Lord's mysterious ways, deepening the intensity of the struggle. It's a very really relevant book to us, I think. But there is something actually unique about how people in our day interact with the topic of this book that I thought I should mention. We went over this a little bit this past Friday, going through Tim Keller's book on making sense of God. And he quotes a, um, a philosopher, Charles Taylor, about something that's rather unique in our day and age with regard to the problem of suffering. Let me just read this little section from Tim Keller's book. Um, Keller says this, ancient people were arguably much more acquainted with brutality, loss, and evil than we are. Their literature, the book of Job is a great example, but Habakkuk as well, is filled with laments about inexplicable suffering. We have lots of this kind of stuff in ancient literature, okay? Yet, there is virtually no ancient thinker who reasoned from the existence of such evil that therefore there couldn't be a God. Philosopher Charles Taylor explains why modern people are far more likely to lose their faith over suffering than those people in times past. And Taylor says... It's because culturally our belief and confidence in the powers of our own intellect have changed. It's not that suffering has changed, but our belief and confidence in the powers of our own intellect have changed. Here's what he means. Ancient people did not assume that the human mind had enough wisdom to sit in judgment on how an infinite God was disposing of things. It really is only in modern times that we get the certainty that we have all the elements we need to carry out a trial of God. Only when this background belief in the sufficiency of our own reason shifted did the presence of evil in the world seem to be an argument against the existence of God. It is assumed, not proven, that a God beyond our reason could not exist and therefore, we conclude that he doesn't exist. Now if you're trying to follow, like, what is that saying? Here's what it's saying Ancient peoples struggled mightily with suffering, even inexplicable suffering. But they never drew the conclusion that therefore there must not be a God the way modern people do. And so you have to ask the question what's changed? And what Charles Taylor says, and he's an excellent analysis of kind of modern secularism, he says what's changed is modern people's belief that they have sufficient reason and understanding to sit in judgment over how God disposes of his world. In other words, they believe that if they can't figure out how a good God Can allow evil and suffering, then there can be no explanation possible. You say, we have this background belief in our modern day that if we can't figure out a sufficient explanation for how evil and the goodness of God can coexist, then God must not exist. And it's that background belief that changes the way we even think about the kind of suffering that Habakkuk is complaining about. Habakkuk complains, but he never jumps to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. As a matter of fact, John Frame has a a book um, where he talks about the problem of evil, and he says, actually, when you look at the Bible, the problem of evil is very different than what we mean when we talk about the problem of evil. The Bible never thinks that the problem of evil is a reason to doubt the existence of God, it wouldn't be a problem if there wasn't a God. It's not really a problem. Oh, it may be an inconvenience. and something we don't like. But it's not a problem that causes philosophical angst and raises questions about the nature of reality if there's not a God. And so it's, here's what I would just say to this. If God is great enough that you will hold him responsible for all the suffering in the world, is it not possible that he's great enough to have reasons beyond what you can understand? If God is great enough to be held responsible for the evil in the world, is it not possible that he's great enough to have reasons beyond what you can understand? In some ways, I, I think you know what I'm suggesting is that the why questions need to evolve into who questions. Not God, how dare you? Why would you do this? But God, what kind of God are you? And I think this, the book of Habakkuk actually helps us down that road. Now, that is not to say that this problem of evil and suffering and a holy and just and good and merciful God is not a perplexing problem. It is a perplexing problem. It's not something that should be easily dismissed, nor a conclusion quickly reached. And I think that's one of the most helpful things about the book of Habakkuk. Look at this. um, In verse 12, Habakkuk's second complaint shows us that even God's people, even prophets, struggle mightily. To reconcile God's character with his ways. You look through this section of verses 12 through 17, it's it's really made even more intense by God's character, and he goes through quite a lot of God's character in his complaint. It's woven all through it. See, See this, God is everlasting, God is holy, he's our rock and the one who is too pure to even look on evil, therefore The problem, how can God allow these evil people to exist, let alone how can he use them for his purposes? So it's certainly a perplexing problem. It's not to be dismissed. Even though I read the thing by Charles Taylor that the way modern people kind of conclude from the problem something that ancient people didn't conclude, namely that God can't exist, it's still a perplexing problem. And and we should never just dismiss it out of hand. Nor should we reach a conclusion too quickly. Because as you look into what Habakkuk's saying here, verses 12 through 14 in particular, the problem is actually made more intense by the knowledge that Habakkuk has of God's character. He wouldn't be struggling as much if he just had a vague knowledge of God, if he just had some idea that there was this kind of deist God who made the world and then just sort of let it go on its own. He wouldn't have the intense struggle. The reason the struggle is intense is because he knows what God is like, because God has revealed what he's like, that he's holy, that he's pure, that he's sovereign, that he's everlasting. So the... The problem's made more intense by the knowledge Habakkuk has of the character of God. But the resolution is made possible by God's character as well. So look at what Habakkuk does. Chapter 2, verse 1. He doesn't run from God. He's perplexed. He's complaining. But he's complaining to God. Instead of running away from God... He runs toward him. And that's really important to see here. Rather than concluding that God is evil or that he doesn't exist, Habakkuk takes his confusion to God and waits for the Lord to answer him. He cries his tears to God and he waits. And look where he waits. It's an interesting image he uses here. It says that he waits in the watch post or the watchtower. And it's interesting. It's like he kind of gets out of the, the muck and mire, if you will, and he sort of goes up high where he can get a perspective to see. And he waits. It's interesting. The image that he uses to describe his waiting is a place where he can gain a perspective on the big picture. Not, he can see the forest, not just the tree. Rather than being certain that he sees everything... He says, I'm going to wait because I need to see more, and I seem to see the bigger picture. And I think that's huge because I think sometimes what happens to us is we see what we see, and we jump to conclusions. Habakkuk says, I don't understand how this and this fit together, so I'm going to go to you, I'm going to bring my complaint to you, and then I'm going to wait for a perspective that I need. I'm going to wait for you to answer. His knowledge of God helps him to not jump to conclusions. Now, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher, um, was a preacher in London. I think Scott Sauls actually mentioned him this, this Sunday if you were at Christ's Pres. But um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor who gave up his um, practice. He was the, actually the physician to the king of England. So he's a pretty prestigious doctor, gave up his practice, eventually pastored a church in London um, and pastored his people through the bombing of London. In nineteen fifty three he wrote a book on Habakkuk called From Fear to Faith. It's a pretty helpful book. And he says this that when we're in the midst of this kind of perplexing struggle like Habakkuk is, the the first thing that we should do is to stop and think and go back to basic principles. I love that we sang that creedle song. Because we need to go back to basic principles that we know, like bedrock truths, and then come at the problem indirectly. Instead of just focusing on the problem and letting it cont- like kind of give context to everything, you step back, what do I know? What is the bedrock that I know? And how might that give me perspective on this problem? And that's what you see Habakkuk doing here. See, God's character makes the perplexment, if you will, worse. But the more that he ponders God's character, the more it keeps him from jumping to conclusions that can't possibly be right. Let me show you what that, how that works. Habakkuk knows that God is everlasting. What does that mean? What's the significance of that? Well, it means that God is Lord of history from the beginning to the end. And that's important. God says, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans to do this thing. But notice, God is the one who's doing it. What do the Chaldeans think? Chaldeans think that they're conquering by the power of their gods, That's why they offer a sacrifice to their dragnet. That's why they're proud of what they're doing. Because when they conquer, it justifies them and it makes them believe that they are right and powerful. They don't understand what's really going on. God is the Lord of all nations. And if the Chaldeans are going to be raised up for a season... It's because God raised them up. It's not because they have power. They don't have power. God has power. So God is everlasting. He knows, Habakkuk knows as well, that God is holy. God cannot do anything unrighteous. And even though it looks like God is doing something unrighteous, Habakkuk doesn't go to that conclusion because he knows bedrock truth. That God is holy. He also knows bedrock truth that God is faithful. And that's that interesting thing in verse 12 where he says, we shall not die. And I think the way to understand that is, as a people, what he's saying is, your people Israel will not be wiped off the face of the earth. Even if you raise up the Chaldeans to take us into exile, we will survive. How do we know that? Because you promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And you are faithful to your promise. You promised to our father Abraham that out of him you would make a mighty nation that would be a blessing to the whole earth. And I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand how this raising up of the Chaldeans fits with that. But I know... That you are faithful, and if you promised that the seed of the Messiah would come and restore shalom and healing to the world, then it will happen. Even though I don't know how. But he also knows that a holy God who cannot look on evil, evil's still here. And so what does he do? He leaves it to God and he waits and he watches. Now, I just want to ask you this question. It's a very important question. What do you know about God that can help you from jumping to conclusions? And what conclusions do you tend to jump to? God doesn't care about me. God might care about other people, but I'm not very significant. Maybe he doesn't know what I really need. I try and tell him all the time. Seems the more I tell him, the more anxious I get because I believe that he's not hearing me. What is it that you know about the character of God that can help you not run to conclusions, jump to conclusions that are really wrong conclusions? And I would say, how about the cross? Because while Habakkuk knows that God is holy, knows that God is faithful, knows that God will keep his promises, the Apostle Paul tells us that for those of us who live on the other side of the cross, we know that all the promises of God, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. As the NIV says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all fulfilled in Christ. So how does that help you not jump to conclusions that God has abandoned me, that I've out His grace and his patience, and his mercy. Can the cross help do battle against the hasty conclusions that you tend to run to and that I tend to run to? Habakkuk waits, but he doesn't wait without anything to help him in the waiting. He has the character of God. The waiting is difficult, but God gives what we need to wait. So let's look into that. Look down chapter 2. We're going to start reading verse 2. So Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait, and see the answer. And then the Lord answers in chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright with him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And then... God pronounces this, woe to the Chaldeans. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. So now the tables are going to be turned. Because you have plundered many nations, God says to the Chaldeans, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. We go on, down, jump down to verse 13. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jump down to verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise! Can this teach, this idol? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, And there is no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And let's look at this before we get to the last section. God says, wait. The appointed time for making all things right the appointed time for giving the Chaldeans what they deserve is coming. It's surely coming, but it's not yet. And what do we learn from that? God is sovereign over all things. All things happen in the time he appoints them, but the time is not yet. You need to remember, this is God's word not Habakkuk's best guess. He's not just saying, well, I know God has to fix this one day. No, God speaks to him and says, write it down. This is my word. It will be done exactly as I say and exactly when I say. Now, of course, if you reject the idea that God can speak truthfully, prophetically, then this doesn't help much. But God says judgment is coming for the Chaldeans in my time. It will come exactly as I say, exactly when I say. And this is something we need to always remember about evil. It will not go unpunished. And that's vital to know if you would wait. Waiting is not saying, I'll just let this evil go. I just need to forgive and forget. Waiting is... Is putting your hope in God who promises to make all things right. Now we live on the other side of this prophecy about the Chaldeans. It did come to pass. The Chaldeans were destroyed, and they weren't the first or the last. History is littered with nations that have come and go. We read Psalm 2, it's a pretty amazing Psalm. The nations take their stand against God, and what does he do? He laughs. That's pretty, I don't know if that kind of upsets you at all, to think about God looking at your rebellion of these nations and saying, because that's what he does. That's trash talking. I don't know if you know the Bible does that, but that's what God does. He looks at the nations who say, we're going to take our stand against God. We're going to throw off the chains and the shackles because he just wants to keep us from having a good time. And he just looks at Him and says, that's what he does. He says, I'm going to establish my holy one on his holy hill, the Messiah and all nations will bow before him. So you go ahead, you know, you have your rebellion, you do what you want. In my appointed time, my appointed Messiah will come, and every knee will bow. You can count on it. He says here the powerful nations are just idols. And I love just thinking about this. You think about the history, all the times that it seemed to God's people like God's promises couldn't possibly come true as this nation and that nation took the lead on the world stage. Malcolm Muggeridge captured this so beautifully. I don't know if you've ever read Malcolm Muggeridge. He's amazing. He was a guy, he was a journalist, not a Christian, who was stationed in Russia and knew Stalin. And then he ends up going to India where he works as a journalist and he knew Gandhi. Eventually he gets converted and he's the one who discovers Mother Teresa uh, there in Calcutta, and actually, uh, at that point, he's a journalist on the BBC, and he basically introduces her to the world, and he's just an amazing writer. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read like C.S. Lewis sometimes, or G.K. Chesterton, and you just marvel at their prose, and the way they can put together words. Muggridge is like that. If you like those guys, and you've never heard of Muggridge, you should read some of his, but I love this. He says, we look back on history, and what do we see? Empires rising and falling. Revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and wealth dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. Shakespeare, Shakespeare speaks of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. In one lifetime, he's speaking as an Englishman here. In one lifetime, I have seen my own fellow countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world. The great majority of them convinced, in the words of what is still a favorite song, that God who's made them mighty would make them mightier still. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last a thousand years. An Italian clown announced that he would restart the calendar to begin his own assumption of power. I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Ashoka, more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I've seen America wealthier, and in terms of weaponry, more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or a Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one little lifetime, all gone with the wind. England, part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy, Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep her motorways roaring and the smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victories of the Don Quixotes of the media as they charge the windmills of a Watergate. All in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. Behind the debris, Of these self-styled, sullen supermen and imperial diplomats, there stands the gigantic figure of one person, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind might still have hope, the person of Jesus Christ. The story's not done, though. There are lots that have rose and fall. Judgment is still coming. But not only is judgment coming, the waiting is not in vain because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Chapter 2, verse 14, maybe that's a verse that's familiar. Sometimes when you're reading the minor prophets, you're like, oh, I've heard that verse. Usually because they've been quoted in the New Testament. Like, the righteous shall live by faith. Oh, I've heard that. Paul quotes that, doesn't he? Yes, he does. All the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Yes, the New Testament references that. The promised future you see is not just a vision of judgment, but a vision of healing and wholeness. The waiting is not in vain because the Lord is Lord of history and all things will be made right. But even though we know how things ultimately turn out, it doesn't mean that we're given the knowledge of exactly how things will turn out to us before then. Therefore, we must wait. And this is the theme that runs all through scripture. How are we to wait? And that brings us to the last chapter. Habakkuk prays. This book ends with a prayer. Now, I won't read all of chapter 3, but what happens in verses 1 through 15 is Habakkuk prays about God, and he rehearses to God what he knows about God, and in particular, he talks about the Red Sea. He didn't use that Word, but that's what he's talking about. Which again, I thought it was great that we're singing that song about the Red Sea Road. The Red Sea is the dominant picture in the Old Testament of God's redemption. It's the great gospel picture in the Old Testament. So he he, he prays and he thanks God and he remembers God's redemptive acts, which means Christianity is based on events that really happened, and we're to remember them in the waiting. One of the most common commands in the Old Testament is not, you know, do this or do that. It's remember and rejoice. Not just remember, but let it become alive again so that you can even rejoice in what God has done. And think about the Red Sea. You remember what Israel thought as they were there on the banks of the Red Sea? what, there were no graves in Egypt that God brings us out here in the desert to die? Why didn't he just kill us back there? And then God says, stand back and watch. Something that you never would have imagined. And that's what Habakkuk needs to remember. God's ways are mysterious. That's not just a problem. That's our hope, is that his ways are mysterious. But even though Habakkuk knows this, Look at what he says in verse 15 and 16. He says, you trample the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Again, it's a reference to the Red Sea. He goes, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now, let me, let me go, talk about this. His honest confession here, I think, is amazing and refreshing. Even though he knows and he can rehearse in such powerful language about God's redemptive acts in the Red Sea, he says, you know, I know all that, but I'm still, like, shaken. I'm trembling. I'm still afraid. Lest you think God's prophets, people in the Bible, are supermen, they're not. He says, I know this, but I'm still afraid especially when I think about what's coming, because you said the Chaldeans are coming to take us away. And even though I know that you love us, and even though I know that you ultimately will preserve your people, and the knowledge of you will eventually cover the whole earth, I know all that, I'm still afraid. And if that's where you are, God says, come to me. I get that. His trust is sobering. What I mean by that is he waits knowing that God's people need to be chastised for their own good. Now, that's strong medicine. Hebrews chapter 12 says that all God's true children are chastised because he loves them. Now, what is chastising? It's a word maybe you've heard, maybe you've never thought about what it means. Here's what it means. It doesn't mean that you're punished out of anger. It means that you've been given correcting love to make you more like Jesus. Chastisement is not punishment out of anger. It's correcting love that makes you more like Jesus. Hebrews 12 goes so far to say that if you've never experienced the correcting love to make you more like Jesus, you may not actually be a true child of God. And see, the Hebrews were Christians who were beginning to be persecuted because the Romans realized, wait, they're not Jews. We'll tolerate the Jews, but the Christians, that's a new religion. They're not on the list of tolerated religions. And so some of the Hebrews are like, eh, maybe we should go back to being Jews. Because Hebrews Hebrew says, you've already begun to suffer persecution. Your property's been confiscated, but you haven't yet shed blood. But it's coming. And they're asking the question, who is God? Does he love us? Look at our circumstances. And the writer of Hebrews says, just like Habakkuk learns, look at God to determine how you interpret your circumstances. Don't look at your circumstances to interpret who God is. You have to start with bedrock. And your interpretation of what's going on is never complete. You never have the perspective to try and reason from your circumstances to who God is. And he rejoices in the God of his salvation. And all I would say as we close is how much more can we see this now that we live on the other side of the cross? Because, you see, the cross is the ultimate mysterious way of God. And sometimes we get really frustrated that God does mysterious things. But let me tell you, if it wasn't for the mysterious ways of God, we'd have no hope at all. And the cross is the ultimate example of God using even evil people to do his perfect will. And as the early church wrestled with their own persecution, it was that truth that was bedrock for them. You see it referenced in Acts chapter 2. You see it referenced again in Acts chapter 4. Here's the version in Acts chapter 2. Peter gets up and is preaching on the day of Pentecost. You all know probably that he said, repent and be baptized, but do you also know uh, a few verses before that he says this. He tells all the, the Jews there in Jerusalem, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. If you want to wrestle with whether or not God can use evil deeds to accomplish his purposes, all you got to do is look at the cross. Because it was the worst, most unjust thing ever done. And it was the plan of God to bring salvation and healing to the world. I was going to read this uh, hymn, Beams of Heaven. I don't have time, but I'm going to encourage you to look at it. It's on the, If you just look up Beams of Heaven uh, on the Indelible Grace hymn book site, I'll post it on the Facebook group. It's a fabulous hymn about the reality of God's sovereignty and struggle in the here and now, and confidence that he will make things right one day. And I particularly love this hymn when I remember who wrote it, a guy named Charles Tinley, who while he was technically freeborn in the 1850s, he actually was raised among slaves in the eastern shore of Maryland, was hired out to work with the slaves, and then really lived his whole life during the Reconstruction era. So when he writes about justice being perverted and wickedness reigning, he doesn't write lightly about those things, and yet he still is able to trust God in the midst of it. It's a powerful hymn, particularly when you know that, that background. But we're going to instead conclude um, with singing the doxology, and before we do that, we're going to pray.